Deuteronomy 7, starting at verse 1. When the Lord brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him, he will repay him to his face." You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And the second reading is from Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, starting at verse verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. One of the great tragedies of world history is that when Emmanuel came, Israel did not recognise him for what he was, God with us. And the Apostle Paul really struggles with this question and particularly does so in Romans chapter 11, which is our next Bible reading. Romans chapter 11 and the verses 11 through to 32. So Romans chapter 11, uh, beginning at verse 11 and reading through to Verse 32. Now in wrestling with this question about Jewish unbelief, the Apostle Paul uses an image, he uses an illustration, and that is of the olive tree. Now some people have suggested that Paul might have been a great apostle, a great missionary, but maybe he wasn't such a great farmer. Because the illustration that he uses is that of a cultivated olive tree where the branches are cut off 
and wild olive shoots are put in. Usually farmers do it the other way around. They start with a wild olive tree and to have it grow the way they want it to grow, they put in shoots from a cultivated olive tree. But Paul was smarter than we think because in exceptional cases, farmers would take branches from a wild olive tree to reinvigorate an old, decadent olive tree that no longer bore fruit. So that's the illustration that he's using here in Romans 11. So begin reading at verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches are broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And our text is from verses 28 and 29 in the last paragraph. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Well, I must say that my sermon this morning has a rather unusual title. What do you think of the Jews? But I must say the title would be even more unusual if it were a somewhat other question. What do you think of the Americans? Or what do you think of the Brits? Or what do you think of the Chinese? The difference, you see, is that our question this morning is such a biblical question. What do you think of the Jews? For any serious student of the Bible, this would also have to be a reasonable question. After all, the Bible is such a Jewish book. Just think about it. All the patriarchs were Jews. All the prophets were Jews. All the Davidic kings were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. All the apostles were Jews. All the Bible writers, except for Luke, were Jews. And the Bible story itself is set in and around the land of Israel, the home of the Jews. So through and through, the Bible is a thoroughly Jewish book. So what do you think of the Jews? Now let me remind you very quickly what I'm not asking you here. I'm not asking you for your political views about the state of Israel or about the current crisis in the Middle East. I'm not asking you a political question. And I don't really intend this to be a personal question. I'm not asking you how you get along with Jews that you may know personally. I'm not asking you whether you feel comfortable in their presence or whether you have Jewish friends. If you do, that's great. And I hope you get along well with them. But that's not my question this morning. And so when I ask you what you think of the Jews, it is not a theological question. Sorry, it is not a political question. It is not even a personal question. But rather it is a theological question. Where do the Jews fit into your thinking as a Christian? Where do they fit into your theology, if you like? Is there still a place for them, or have they become theologically irrelevant? And are the Jews still God's chosen people? Does God still have a covenant with them today, or is that a thing of the past? And are there biblical prophecies about the Jews that still need to be fulfilled? Or have these prophecies been fulfilled already? So what do you think 
of the Jews? Well, to answer these questions, I don't think we can go to a better place than the words of our text in Romans 11, in verses 28 and 29. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now notice the paradox. The Jews are enemies and they are loved. It says so in the same verse. How does that work? Does God have a love-hate complex with the Jews? How can Paul in the same breath call the Jews enemies and beloved? How can they be beloved enemies? How paradoxical is that? Well, to unravel the paradox, I suggest that we proceed very carefully and take a close look at each part of our text. And these difficult verses fall very naturally into three parts. Firstly, as far as the gospel is concerned, the Jews are enemies for your sake. Secondly, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the forefathers. And then thirdly, God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So here are our three points for the sermon this morning. The Jews as enemies, the Jews as loved, and the gifts and the calling of God. So let's begin where Paul begins. And he begins with a very politically incorrect statement. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Now, at first sight, this claim seems to have no redeeming features at all. But before we get too upset with Paul at this point, we need to figure out exactly what he means. In what sense are the Jews enemies? Are they God's enemies or are they our enemies? Well, Paul doesn't tell his Gentile readers that the Jews are their enemies, but rather they are God's enemies. They are enemies on your account. Now, the words of God are not there in the original. They are slipped in there in the, in the ESV. But I think they are a good clarification. The Jews are not our enemies. They are the enemies of God. And I think this is confirmed in the second half of the verse where it says, they are beloved on account of the patriarchs. Loved by whom? Loved by God. And so in verse 28, Paul is not talking so much about the relationship between Jew and Gentile as the relationship between the Jews and God. But this then raises a further question. Is Paul speaking about the Jews' hostility to God or God's hostility to them? Well, if you look at the context, if you look at chapter 11 or if you look more broadly at chapters 9 to 11, you'll soon discover that you don't have to make a choice. These chapters speak of the Jews as the enemies of God and also of God as the enemy of the Jews. In these chapters, Paul speaks repeatedly of Jewish transgression, Jewish unbelief and Jewish disobedience. And in chapter 10, he sums it up by saying, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Hence, they were God's enemies. 
And of course, if we don't submit, any of us, Jew or Gentile, if we don't submit to God's righteousness, we are God's enemies until we are reconciled by Jesus Christ. But then equally in these verses, Paul speaks of God's hostility to the Jews. God hardens them. He rejected them. And he gave them a spirit of stupor, he says in chapter 11. And so when Paul speaks of the Jews as enemies on your account, it is clear that he is speaking both of their hostility to God and God's hostility to them. And to put it quite simply and perhaps less offensively, they have been alienated from God. But why? How could this happen? How could the people of God, whom he had been preparing for the previous 2,000 years, how could they be alienated from him? How could they become his enemies? Well, this is where the rest of the verse comes to its own. The hostility and the alienation are not absolute. They're two important qualifications. They are enemies as far as the gospel is concerned. And they are enemies on your account. So what does Paul mean here? What does he mean when he says that the Jews are enemies as far as the gospel is concerned? Well, essentially he's saying, if you look at it from the gospel's perspective, if you look at it from the gospel's point of view, they are enemies. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the Romans when he was staying in Corinth towards the end of his third missionary journey. By then he was an experienced missionary and he knew what he was talking about. If you read the book of Acts, a certain pattern begins to emerge. When Paul visited a new town or city, what was always his first port of call? It was the Jewish synagogue. And what would he do in the Jewish synagogue? Well, he would declare to all those who were present that in Jesus... God had fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. That through the resurrection, through the death and the resurrection of Christ, Old Testament prophecies had been fulfilled and that therefore Jesus is the promised Messiah. But that message seldom met with a, with a positive response. Sometimes Paul was thrown out of the synagogue. Other times he was run out of town. On one occasion he was even stoned and left for dead. So when Paul claimed that they were enemies on account of the gospel, then he was speaking from bitter experience. Yes, some of the Jews had believed, but most of them had rejected the gospel. And that rejection was in fact an indication of their alienation from God. Their actions had shown that they were hostile to God. But they were also enemies on your account, for your sake, for the sake of the Gentiles. And that's the other pattern that we see emerging in the book of Acts. When the Jews had rejected the gospel, Paul had no choice but to go to the Gentiles. What, the, what was the Jews' loss became the Gentiles' gain. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 11, some of the natural branches were broken off so that wild olive branches could be grafted in. As mysterious as it may sound, 
the alienation of the Jews led to the incorporation of the Gentiles. You see, their hostility was not pointless. It was on your account. It was for your sake. It was for our sake as Gentile believers. It was because they were cut off that we could be grafted in. And so it pays to read Paul very carefully at this point. The Jews are not enemies in some absolute sense. And they are certainly not Paul's personal enemies. Remember what he said back in chapter 9, as Andrew read earlier. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul's heart bled for his fellow Jews. This is not someone who hated the Jews. This is someone who loved them dearly. They are enemies only as far as the gospel is concerned and only for your sake, for the sake of Gentile inclusion into the people of God. Now here comes the really sad part. And on this score, the church and Christians have so often got it wrong down the ages. During my retirement, one book that I've read is by a Mark Merrill Bolander. And it has the foreboding title, When the Cross Became a Sword. And it's about how Jews have fared in Christian countries over the last 2,000 years. And it makes for disturbing reading. It gives us some chapters of church history that we'd rather not know about. But I'm going to tell you anyway, because I think we have to be honest. Did you know, for example, that when the Roman Empire was Christianized in the 4th century, the Jews were worse off under Christian rule than they had been under pagan rule. And the reason for that can be traced back not to political leaders, but to church leaders. One of the great preachers of the ancient church was John Chrysostom, John the Golden Mouth. He was a very eloquent speaker, but sadly used some of his brilliant talent against the Jews. He delivered a series of eight sermons which actually had the title Against the Jews. And his verbal attacks were the most vicious of any of the church fathers. Among other things, this is what he said. God has always hated the Jews and it is incumbent upon all Christians to hate the Jews. Well, in later history, that is, of course, exactly what happened. During the Crusades of the Middle Ages, the Crusaders not only hated the Muslims, they also hated the Jews. The first crusade, which was conducted during the 11th century, on their way to what they call the Holy Land, they marauded and destroyed Jewish communities along the Rhine and Danube rivers. But I think the lowest point came when they actually arrived in Jerusalem on the 15th of July in the year 1099, 
Jews were herded into a synagogue. The doors and the windows were barred and the crusaders set the building on fire. And because they couldn't get out, all the Jews inside were burned alive. Another dark blot on the history of the church was the Spanish Inquisition. It lasted from 1478 to 1492. And the Inquisition forced Jews to convert to Christianity and to be baptised. And many did in order to avoid persecution. But they also continued to practise their own religion secretly. Of those who were found out, 5,000 recanted, but 700 were burned at the stake. Now, if you're not inclined all that much to identify with the Crusaders or with the Inquisitors, there is another example which for most of us will be much closer to home. Towards the end of his life, Martin Luther wrote a tract called Concerning the Jews and Their Lies. And among other things, this is what he said. Their synagogue should be set on fire. This should be done for the honour of God. Their homes should be destroyed. They should be deprived of their prayer books. Their Talmud teaches idolatry, lies, cursing and blasphemy. The rabbis must be forbidden under the threat of death to teach anyone. Passports and travelling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. Let us drive them out of our country for all time. Now, the long-term effects of this inflammatory kind of language were, of course, disastrous. Years later, Adolf Hitler could write these awful words in his book, Mein Kampf, and he said this, Hence today I believe that I am acting in accordance with the Almighty Creator by defending myself against the Jew. I am fighting for the work of the Lord. You see, the way that Christians have sometimes treated Jews has left some awful blots and ugly stains on the pages of church history. There is a lot that we need to be ashamed of. Now, some of it was done in terrible ignorance. It's hard to say whether it was all a tragic misreading of of Romans 11.28. But Bible scholars such as John Chrysostom and Martin Luther should have known better. They both knew the letter to the Romans well. The best that can be said is here they had read only half the verse. They should have read the other half as well. And now let's turn to that other half, which is also my second point, the second half of verse 28. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So thankfully the enmity between the Jew and God is not the end of the story. They are also loved, loved by God because of the patriarchs. But this only deepens the dilemma. How can they be the enemies of God and yet be loved by God at the same time? And what do the patriarchs have to do with it? What does God's love for unbelieving Jews in Paul's day have to do with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? Well, to answer that question, we need to remember that the two halves of verse 28 are parallel. 
Just like God's enmity to the Jews is qualified in two ways, his love for the Jews is qualified in two ways as well. It is as far as election is concerned and on account of the patriarchs. But again, what does Paul mean exactly? Well, when he speaks of election, he is not thinking of the salvation of individual Jews. Rather, he is thinking about the election of the nation as a whole, a nation, the nation of Israel, as God's special chosen people. And I'm reminded of the words that were read earlier from Deuteronomy 7, where Moses says to Israel, The Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, the Israelites to whom Moses was speaking were God's chosen nation. God chose them as a nation out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people. Israel was God's chosen people. Why? Because of the oath that he swore to their forefathers. Now in Paul's day, the Jews, whether they were believers or unbelievers, were still God's chosen people. Why? Because of the patriarchs. You see, the reason hasn't changed. Their status hasn't changed. Whether it's the Israelites under Moses, whether it's the Jews in Paul's day, or whether it's the Jews in our own day, nothing has changed. They are still the chosen people. They are still the special people of God. And they have that status because of the patriarchs because they are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And why is that important? Well, think no further than God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. God makes this grand promise. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And that promise to Israel still stands. It has been expanded, but not rescinded. They are still God's chosen people. They are still loved because of the patriarchs. Now, here's a thought, just an aside. Of all the Nobel Peace Prize winners over the years, 20% have been Jews, even though they only make up 0.2% of the world's population. They are an amazing people. But again, to flesh out what Paul means by God's love for the Jews in verse 28, we need to look at the wider context. In chapter 11, Paul makes some amazing statements about the future of the Jews. He predicts a great spiritual revival that is yet to happen among the Jewish people. Now, there are three main verses that stand out. I'll first like to read them to you without comment. and They're all from Romans 11, first verse 12. 
But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? And verse 15, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And verse 26a, And so all Israel will be saved. Ultimately, God's love for Israel will be shown most fully in a spiritual revival which Paul refers to as their fullness, their acceptance and their inclusion. It is then that all Israel will be saved. Now, this doesn't mean that every last Jew will be saved, but it refers to the nation as a whole, though not necessarily to every individual member. But even so, this is a great prospect for every Christian believer to look forward to. There will come a time when the majority of ethnic Jews will be saved. It is a bold prophecy and we should look forward to it. We should pray for it with eager anticipation. God's love for the patriarchs will one day come to a glorious climax when all Israel will be saved. Now if the Jews are beloved because of the patriarchs, then surely as Christians we should love them too. To reverse what Chrysostom said, let me insist that it is incumbent on all Christians to love the Jews. Now, this doesn't mean that we support every act of the state of Israel. Again, this is not a political question. But it does mean that if God loves the Jews, then so should we. But what will that look like? Well, let me offer a few suggestions. First of all, I think we need to realise the debt of gratitude that we owe the Jews. And let's tell them. I remember hearing of a a guy from Geelong here and uh, he was witnessing on a university campus in America. And one day it so happened that he was talking to a student who was a Jew. And as as that became obvious, the Christian guy said, I want to thank you for being a Jew. The Jewish guy was blown away. Never before had anyone thanked him for being a Jew. And then secondly, as Christians, we should repent of past sins. Now realise that that presents a moral dilemma. Can we ever genuinely repent for the sins of others? How could I possibly repent for the sins of the crusaders or of the inquisitors or even of Martin Luther for that matter? Now that may be so, but public apologies from representative leaders can have a powerful impact. Think of Kevin Rudd saying sorry to the Aborigines. Now I must say, to his credit, that 20 years ago, Pope Paul John, uh, John Paul II apologised publicly to the Jews. About the same time, some Lutheran churches also apologised to the Jews 
to some of the things that Martin Luther wrote. But more could be done. A few years ago, I wrote to Pope Francis asking that he follow in the footsteps of his predecessor and deepen their apology to the Jews. I'll get to hear back. And then we must pray for the Jews. And historically, this has been a real strong point in the Reformed tradition. Back in the middle of the 17th century, the Westminster Assembly in its Directory of Public Worship gave this instruction to the churches. Pray for the propagation of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ to all nations for the conversion of the Jews and the fullness of the Gentiles. I say historically we've been good at doing that. Some of you will remember that in Europe during the Second World War, Sundays would be set aside for ministers in their congregational prayer to pray for the Jews. In the congregation that I served in Sydney back in the 1970s, there were two brothers, middle-aged men at the time. And their father had been a reformed minister in Amsterdam. And one day he had prayed publicly for the Jews during a Sunday service. There was an informant in the congregation. That week he was arrested. He was taken to the concentration camp at Dachau and he was never seen again. We have every opportunity to pray for the Jews. How often do we avail ourselves of that opportunity? How often do we pray for the Jews in our personal devotion, in our family devotion, in our church? And then we must also continue to proclaim the gospel to the Jews. In fact, in Romans 1, Paul declares that the gospel is for all those who believe, first for the Jews and also for the Gentile. And that priority still holds today. But proclaiming the gospel to the Jews is hard work. A few years ago I was speaking to a man who dedicated his entire Christian ministry to Jewish evangelism. I said, how many Jews were converted because of your ministry? Well, he answered in rather general terms at first, but when I pushed him, he said, seven. All those years of ministry and just seven converts. And for other people who have worked in this field, the fruits have been even less noticeable. And yet, God's ancient people still deserve to hear the gospel. They can have their sins forgiven through Jesus Christ, just like everyone else. And why is this so? Why are they loved? Well, this brings us to verse 29, my third point. For God, gifts and his calling are irrevocable. Now this is one amazing statement. God never goes back on his word. Even, the, even though the Jews in Paul's day, by and large, rejected the gospel and rejected the Messiah, and even though most Jews in our own day do the same, God is not going back on his promises because his gifts and his calling are irrevocable. Now, whether you drive a Ford or a Holden or a Toyota, it can be recalled. But God's promises can never be recalled. They are irrevocable. And so when Paul speaks of God's gifts and his call, what does he have in mind? Well, I think it gives us a fair idea in chapter 9 and verses 4 and 5. 
where Paul has this to say about his fellow Jews. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Christ. Now that's some heritage. That's some catalogue of God's gifts. That's quite a calling. The Jews have been and still are a very privileged people. Now, we don't have time to discuss all of these privileges, but let me zoom in on just one. Paul says, theirs are the covenants. Now, let's focus on that for a moment. As Christians, we so easily tend to say that the old covenant was with Israel and the new covenant is with the church. And then we speak of the Jews as being God's old covenant people. But is this accurate? Let's think of the biblical covenants. The Abrahamic covenant was with Jews. The Mosaic covenant was with Jews. The Davidic covenant was with Jews. These old covenants were all with Jews. But what about the new covenant? How does it go? What is the heart of it? Well, you remember those famous words from Jeremiah 31. I will put my law in their minds and on their hearts I will write it. I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness and their sins will I remember no more. Now, with whom does God make that covenant? Is it with Christians? Is it with Gentiles? No. Listen to how it is introduced. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And when this verse is quoted in Romans 8, in, in Hebrews 8, it makes exactly the same point. The new covenant was originally made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The new covenant was also a Jewish covenant. Now think of the time when Jesus instituted the new covenant. It was when he was having his last supper with the disciples. He took the wine, he gave thanks and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And all the people he said it to were Jews. There was not a Gentile in sight. Like the others, the new covenant is a Jewish covenant. As Gentile Christians, we have been included in that covenant. But we are Johnny-come-latelys. It was originally a covenant with the Jews. And so it's not correct to refer to the Jews as God's old covenant people, except in some historical sense. Like the Jews of today, they are God's new covenant people. The new covenant was made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, maybe most of them are covenant breakers, but that doesn't detract from the fact that the new covenant was primarily made with them. For God's gifts and God's call are irrevocable. Now, while I'm trying to tackle some misconceptions, let me try and deal with another one. 
Have you ever heard the church referred to as the new Israel or the true Israel or spiritual Israel? Now these terms fall from our lips so glibly sometimes. But that kind of language is simply not there in the New Testament. A few years ago I had an opportunity to do a study of the words Israel and Israelite in the New Testament. There were 77 occurrences in all. And I must say that I was surprised by the results of my research. These terms were always used in an ethnic sense. They referred either to believing or unbelieving Jews. They never referred to Gentile Christians. And yet from as early as the second century, Christians have taken the terms Israel and Israelite and applied them to Christians and the church. Now let me quote just one sentence from Justin Martyr to illustrate the point. He was a second century church father and he wrote down his dialogue with Trypho, a Jew. And there he says, As therefore Christ is the Israel and the Jacob, even so we who have been quarried out of the bowels of Christ are the true Israelite race. Now I want to make a big claim here and suggest that this was an early case of identity theft. Now I know that identity theft can be very unsettling. A few years ago I received a phone call from my bank. Have you been to El Salvador recently was the question. Why did they ask? Because someone in that country had been trying to use my credit card details. And what followed was a real administrative hassle. It took quite a while before my identity had been fully restored in the eyes of the bank. Now that was just a small example of identity theft. What Christians have unwittingly done to Jews over the years has been far more serious. So if the, if the church can no long, cannot be described as the new Israel or the true Israel or a spiritual Israel, then what is the relationship between the church and ethnic Israel? If Christians don't replace Israel, then what do they do? If replacement theology is not the answer, then what is? Well, again, Paul answers the question in Romans 11. In verses 17 to 24, as we have seen, he presents the illustration of the olive tree. It is just one olive tree, not two. Now, we might be tempted to think of Israel and the church as two separate olive trees. That God uprooted the old olive tree of Israel to make way for the church. But not even the tragic events of 70 AD when the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed. Not, a, not, not even that event meant that God had finally gotten rid of the old olive tree. It is not as though there is the old olive tree of Israel and then the new olive tree of the church. That's not how God works. God is a far more skillful horticulturalist than that. He doesn't abandon the old tree, but he cuts off some of its branches and he grafts in branches from the wild olive tree. Old branches were broken off 
so that new ones might be grafted in. And that picture that Paul uses certainly puts us in our place as Gentile Christians. We do not support the root. The root supports us. Natural branches were broken off to make way for us. But God is able to graft them in again. And there is every indication that the time is coming when God is going to do that in a big way. And may it be soon. Well, in closing, let me return to some of the questions that I asked at the beginning of this sermon. Are the Jewish people today theologically and spiritually irrelevant? No, no, and a thousand times no. Are the Jews still God's chosen people with whom he is in covenant? Yes, yes, and a thousand times yes. And are there biblical prophecies about the Jews that still need to be fulfilled? Absolutely. And the sooner the better, because Jesus will not return until it happens. So don't forget the Jews. They are still part of God's redemptive plan for this world. Be thankful for them. Pray for them. Support the work of Jewish missions. And whenever you have an opportunity, share the gospel with them. Now, I know this has been a long sermon, but I want to just say one more thing, and it's very personal. One of the dearest, loveliest, and most intelligent people I know happens to be Jewish. She also happens to be my daughter-in-law. And it wasn't until she became involved with our family that I started seriously thinking about what the Bible says about the Jews, seriously looking at what Paul says in Romans 11, praying for the Jews, thinking more about Jewish evangelism. You know what? You don't have to wait for a Jew to join your family to be concerned about the Jews, to have a heart for the Jewish people, to pray for them, to ask for opportunities to witness to them and to support those who work among them. You know, the gospel is for all people, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Our dear God, we do want to thank you for what you've said about the Jews. Lord, we thank you for them. We thank you for the wonderful promises that were made to them. And Lord, we pray that these promises will soon be gloriously fulfilled. O oh Lord, we pray that we ourselves might play our role and bring that about. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to reflect your love for the Jewish people. And Lord, we pray that very soon you will bring about a great revival among them. In Jesus' name, amen.